0: all right those of you in the military you get plenty of opportunity afterwards to go out and uh enjoy the popsicles and lemonade so if you have heard over the course of your life a lot of christian preaching about the subject of love then one of the things you've probably heard is that there are. Several Greek words. We get our New Testament translation based on the original Greek, and there are several Greek words that are translated as love. For instance, in Titus 3.15, Paul writes, All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. And that word for love there is phileo, which is a kind of friendship love, brotherly love always think of the city of Philadelphia, city of brotherly love and and how they magnify brotherly love in so many ways. i lived in Philadelphia for a number of years and have family that loves Philadelphia sports teams, so I know the irony (laughs) and all of that. Um, But nonetheless, John 11 also shows us phileo when it's talking about Jesus outside the tomb of Lazarus, and he is weeping outside the tomb of Lazarus. And those who are watching comment on his love for Lazarus, and they use that word Phileo, another word that shows up also in the New Testament, but it shows up in the, uh, actually the antithesis of it. The word is used, but it's negated, and that's storge, which is, uh, um, again, a kind of affection. We see it in the New Testament in the words that are often translated in the ESV anyway as heartless. Um, Could signify a kind of family love, but there in the New Testament, it's showing the opposite of that, lacking that sort of affection. Another Greek word that we think about is eros. We are familiar with the word erotic, and so we understand eros. Um, Eros was named after the Greek god, whose equivalent for the Roman culture was Cupid. Uh, So it is a a desirous sort of love, uh, largely associated with sexual desire, though not exclusively. Eros is not found in the New Testament. The only way we get a sense for how biblical thinking might be about the term is from the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint. And in there, for instance, there's a positive example of it in Proverbs chapter four, verse six, the father's exhorting his son to pursue wisdom and says, do not forsake her and she will keep you, love her and she will guard you. His point there is desire wisdom, long after wisdom, go after wisdom. Um, But it's also used Largely negatively in that, that uh, translation, the book of Hosea talks about the unfaithful wife and she is pursuing her lovers and it uses the term there. Um, but the Greek word that by far gets the most attention when we talk about the subject of love, it is because it is the one that is most often translated as love is the word agape. Uh, it, it is... Um, a kind of love we often think of as a sort of uniquely sort of special love, that it reflects God's love and the love of God's people to one another. And that's true. But there's been a lot of study on the word agape and and background to it in the first century Greek culture. A lot of books have been written on this and just the use of the word, trying to examine how it was used in that first-century culture. And and I think one theologian in particular has summarized it well. Ben Witherington writes this. It is a fact that in Greek literature, before New Testament times, the verb agapao has nowhere near the importance or even the connotations that it has in the New Testament itself. C.H. Dodd put it this way. The noun is scarcely found in non-biblical Greek. The verb generally has such meanings as to be content with, to like, to esteem, to prefer. It is a comparatively cool and colorless word, which I think is really interesting in that the Holy Spirit, as he is working through the human authors of the New Testament, takes a word that really has very little usage, very little substance in the Greek language of that day, understood to mean a kind of love, but takes that word And fills it with this meaning, this depth of meaning that we begin to see unfold in the New Testament. And so the noun and verb form of agape become the predominant word that's translated, love, in the New Testament. Witherington adds this, he says by doing so, by, by using that word they begin to fill it with the distinctive content for which paganism, even in its highest forms, had no proper expression. They took a word that had very little association in the culture and made it into something unique. And I'll give you one more quote, and I don't often belabor one author like this, but I think this just sort of helps you see the uniqueness of of what the New Testament writers are doing when they begin to talk about love. And and that's what we're gonna see in 1 John chapter 4. It's just the substance of God's love being something that is unusual to the world. And so Witherington writes this concerning other Greek words for love. He says, it's interesting in addition that when pagan religious writers do speak of a God-loving They usually use the word eros, which normally refers to sexual desire and sexual love. This is precisely what the New Testament writers do not want to say about God's love for humankind or God's character. What we see in the New Testament that we take for granted is really the unfolding of the reinventing of the culture's understanding of love. It is essentially saying you you understand affection within the family and for friends. You understand desire, uh, physical desire and attraction and those sorts of things. You've got a sense for what love is, but you really don't have it all. You do not understand love in the fullest sense that the creator lives it out in himself, but also has designed it to be and defined it for us. And so it takes this word, this sort of colorless word as, as Wutherington wrote, and now filling it out to help us understand that love of God, love from God, love for God, that is, is distinct from anything else. So the love of God does not come natural to us. It's really what it's getting at. We understand attraction and affection and those sorts of things, but that sort of love has to be shown to us, it has to be taught to us, and in fact, it has to be cultivated in us by God himself working through his spirit to help us to understand what that is. That's why Paul prays for them to comprehend the Ephesians, to comprehend the height and depth and width of of, of the love of God, because you need the spirit's help in order to understand this love and then to be able to respond in that love. We know that the truest and fullest meaning of love ultimately is revealed in the pinnacle of the New Testament, which is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. 1 John 3.16 says, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. We don't know real love, genuine love, apart from looking to Christ. And so Romans 5.8 also says, God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Love, as we're about to be reminded here in 1 John, was designed and defined by God, it flows from God through His people. He must show us what love is. And so, this morning, as we go back to First John and continue our study of First John, we got just a few more weeks, and then we'll do Second John and Third John. But we're coming to John's third and final set of instructions on the subject of loving brethren. You're, you're saying we've we've seen some of this before, haven't we? The love for brethren, and, and John's coming back to it. And I would suggest you circling back for this last time almost as if to amplify love god's love in a way that that like we would take a diamond and hold it up to the light to see all the facets it's it's i want you to see all you can about this love of god and what it means in terms of it's reflecting through your life and so our passage is going to take us from chapter 4 verse 7 is where we'll start and we'll go through chapter 5 verse 5. it is a, a long section we won't touch on Every piece in detail, Um, but as you, if you have a copy of the notes that were up front, you know I've broken it down into seven points. Some of you heard seven points, and internally you groaned but because you love me as a brother in Christ, you didn't audibilize that groan. You kept it to yourself. And because I love you in Christ, I also want you to get the most you can get out of this passage. So that's the, that's the reason for seven points. Isn't that kind on my part? Five points about God and his love Two about our responding to God's love. So let's start with verses seven and eight. Some of you will start singing these in your mind because even the very reference first John four, seven and eight, you immediately start singing that, that, chorus. You can, you can quietly sing that to yourself if you want. Um, Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. And so point one, very explicit here in the text, God is love. We've seen unequivocal statements like this earlier in John, in John, 1 John um, 1.5, where he says God is light. And, and, and it's very clear from his calling God light that the reference there is to God's holiness, God's purity, the fact that there is no shadow of sin at all in God, there is no darkness, God is light. And so when chapter four says God is love, it does not mean that God is only There are some in the culture and some who attack Christianity who just try to say, well, just God is love. Everything about God is love, and therefore everything should just be loving and and to the exclusion of the fact that God is light, God is um, just, God is righteous, uh, all of that God is merciful. We can go on and on with God's attributes. Uh, Essentially, just like the, the God is light statement, what this is saying, God is love, is that God is Perfect in love. Everything God does flows from his love. God is loving in all of his ways. All of his actions are loving. God is always a loving God. You cannot separate the the love of God from God himself. And and so in in all that we see God do, he is a God of love. But verse 7 also particularly emphasizes the fact that love is from God. That not only is he love, but he is the source of love for the universe. That that it is from God that we understand what love is. It begins and ends with God. Now, keep that in mind with all that we've seen in 1 John, and he alludes to it then in in verse 8. The world does not know God and if the world does not know God it cannot grasp the true meaning of love Uh, that that may be difficult for us to comprehend because we've seen things that we would sort of think are are loving the the world certainly talks about love this music is filled with love movies are filled with stories about love greeting cards are filled with comments about love We, we see love in so many different ways and yet What Scripture is saying is that it is from God and it takes knowing God. And so an unbeliever can try to sort of understand and emulate what they see, but they cannot fully grasp the true meaning of love. No one can truly know love who does not intimately know God. And and in fact, what the the world does is counterfeits that in many senses. What the world does is holds out something that... they would suggest looks like the real thing, and yet it's often used to justify completely unbiblical actions and unbiblical words. Uh, The world says consenting adults can do as they please, especially if they love one another because love is love. Well, that's somewhat illogical, but it's clearly unbiblical. You cannot sustain that from Scripture because Scripture is making it clear that to understand love, to know love, you must know the Creator. Verse 7 says, true love is derived from God. For love to be genuine, it must reflect our knowledge of him. It must reflect of his character. That's why when we talk about love, we're talking about that which is active, not just in words, that which is sacrificial, because that's what God's love is. Uh, Let's read on. Verse 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that god sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him so god is love second god reveals love that word manifest obviously can also be um, revealed translated as revealed god has made his love visible god has shown us what his love is we don't have to guess what his love is. We don't have to think that it's just some term that, that can be defined in however people feel love is. No, God has actually shown us what his love is, what it looks like. And so to understand his love, we must look at Jesus. We have to see it Through Jesus, by believing in Jesus and watching Jesus and listening to Jesus. And ultimately, we know what what did Jesus do? What's, What's the focal point then of understanding the love of God? It is the sacrifice of Christ. It is his death on the cross that he gave himself for our sin. And that is surely love. But actually, Jesus himself takes it to a higher purpose back in the Gospel of John, 14:31, and he says, "I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know what. And I love the Father. I am here to do, to obey the Father and to do the Father's will, even to the point of dying on the cross. and that is the demonstration of my love. For the Father, that I obey him, that I sacrifice, that I do as he tells me to do. And so, yes, Jesus dies for his love for sinners, to to save them and to rescue them, but the even higher motivation is that people would see in his suffering his love for the Father. And so John Jesus reveals to us a, a, a sacrificial and serving love. Verse 10 says, In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And then, if you just scan down a second to verse 19, it says we love because he first loved us. Here's the third point. God initiates love. Whatever love you have for God, whatever love you have for others, for your brothers and sisters in Christ, it is derived from God's love. He loved first. He wasn't waiting in heaven for us to figure out how to love, and then he would respond in love. God, in love, sent his son to die for sinners, and he initiates love. Apart from God loving you, you would not comprehend the meaning of love, much less truly love anyone else, for that matter. We have to know it from him because God shows us love first. God saved you. First, by an eternity past, setting his love on you, that he would then draw you to himself as his own, and and now through the gospel, you now know God and you know his love, and you are now empowered to obey and to love others. That word propitiation. I just want to take just a moment as an aside on that. In verse ten, we've talked about it before on Sunday morning, so it's not a new word, but it may be for you this morning. And so, if it is. It refers to something that only Jesus could do, and it's something that Jesus did on the cross. The Oxford Dictionary says propitiate means to win or regain the favor of a God, spirit, or person by doing something that pleases them. So think about it this way: that man's relationship with God is we are sinners. God is holy, and so we have become immediate enemies of God. We we break God's law and that displeases God, and the penalty, he says, is death, that that there will be death as a result of the judgment of sin, and so God requires a sin offering. Our rebellion against his holy law requires the offering of something for that, that penalty, for that sin penalty, and God demands that this penalty is death. That's why for you and I, To somehow try to earn or win our own salvation is impossible. We face eternal separation from God. We face eternal death for not trusting in the sin offering that he provided. And that's why he's emphasizing here that that propitiation is in Christ. Jesus was able to meet that penalty, the sinless one. Uh, the, the, the sinless one died for sinners, the righteous one for the unrighteous, the one who loves the Father and has eternally loved the Father, gives himself for those who are enemies of God. And that's the offering that is propitiation. So by his death, Jesus became our sin offering. He ultimately satisfied God's wrath so that the penalty of death for you and I could be passed over, so that we might be able to be brought near to God turning to Jesus and trusting in him. That's propitiation, and that is love. God did not have to give his son in our place. He did not have to sacrifice his beloved son, nor did the son have to sacrifice himself. But, but 1 John 4.10 says he did it because of love. That was the, the need to satisfy God's justice, to bring about the propitiation for our sins. So God is love, manifests love, initiates love, and forth, he matures love read a longer section here. This will be verses 13 through 18. And this is a little bit more difficult section and we'll, we'll take our time kind of working through it. But um, 1 John four thirteen. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know As you're going through this passage, it's 17 and 18 that get to this idea of maturing love. But verses 13 through 16 are really pivotal in terms of making a connection in this passage for us in what John has been teaching us. 13 through 15 revisits the whole issue of a a doctrinal test for one's assurance. This is what we talked about last Sunday. John will circle back to it again a little bit when we get into chapter 5 next week but it is essentially saying this is the truth in which you have placed your faith and that truth is that God sent his son Jesus Christ and he says it there in verse 14 to be the savior of the world and so the confession then is that Jesus is the son of God it's the belief that Jesus is who he says he is and that that's sort of a, a doctrinal test of assurance do you believe this about Jesus and if so then you should have hope in that. You should have assurance from that. That's the, the doctrinal truth he relates. Now, now the, the question then as we go through that section, you, you come out of verse uh, 12. If we love one another, God abides in us. His love is perfected. And when you get to verse 17, again, he talks about love being perfected in us. So the question then is 13 through 15, this sort of doctrinal test, how does this fit in here? Why does John just, it seems almost, randomly in this discussion of the love of God and and our carrying out that love. Why does he include this in here? And it's because this really joins the two kinds of assurance that we've been talking about through 1 John. There's the kind that comes from belief in the truth, faith in that which is true. And then there's the kind that comes from obeying the command to love God and love brethren. We've seen this already throughout 1 John, that if you believe this truth and you obey this and, and you love others, then you have assurance. Verses 14 and 15 speak of the Father sending the Son, the object of our faith. But then verse 16 makes the connection. How have we come to know that God is love and that God set his love on us? And the point he's saying is it's because he sent his son into the world to save you. So it's the, that truth of what he's done is the pivot point. It is because he acted in love to save you that you now believe this. And let me give you a, a description that John Stott wrote in, in terms of this section, verses 13 to 16. It says that the father has sent his son is not only the chief test of doctrinal orthodoxy, but also the supreme evidence of God's love An inspiration of ours. The divine human person of Jesus Christ, God's love for us, and our love for God and neighbor cannot be separated. The theology that robs Christ of his Godhead, thereby robs God of the glory of his love and robs us of the one belief that can generate a mature love within us. What he's saying is that the truth that you and I must believe that the Father sent the Son is not only the test of faith and belief, but it is also the evidence of the fact that God loves us and set his love on us. Because the Father in love gave the Son, and the Son in in love gave himself on the cross, we now have faith and assurance of life and forgiveness, of eternal life and forgiveness. And and, and, and he ties that all back in, in verses um, just in that section in 13 and 14 with the Holy Spirit, because the Spirit now abides in us, And and that is the presence of Jesus Christ in us that is testifying to this truth that is empowering us to love and bringing together essentially the doctrinal and the experiential that you believe in the truth about Jesus because God sent him in love and now you therefore love your brethren. And all of that leads into the next point which is the idea then of your, your love maturing, your love becoming more perfect as it describes it here in verses 17 and 18. As we grow in our understanding of these truths, grow in the knowledge of who Jesus is and what he's done, grow in the reality of the Father sending the Son sacrificially, as we grow in these truths, that should produce within us gratitude and worship to God, to Christ for for what he's done, and also a gratitude for God's love. As we understand these truths, we can't help, but be captivated as John is that God loves us, that he would do this out of this incredible love for us. And so the more that we meditate on the Father's love for us, the more we look at Jesus on the cross suffering for us, the more that our own love grows for him, and the more that our own desire to love others should grow, our desire that others would see the the wonders of the gospel and the beauty of Jesus Christ, that, that is God's love now flowing through us based on what we believe and know now wanting to love him back and to love others. And so the fruit of that growth is a maturing love. And By that, he's describing in activity here a love that is increasingly sacrificial, a love that is increasingly active, a love that is more and more serving others. It is a love that is more giving to those who we might otherwise find hard to love. It's a love that's more willing to cover another's sin. Love covers a multitude of sin. It's a love that is more patient with another's weakness. It's a love that is more bent on striving for unity with my brothers and sisters in Christ. Those those qualities on this side of eternity, should be growing in us, and that is the maturing of the love of God in us. Because we are being inclined outward toward people, toward being patient with them, toward toward helping them, toward serving them, because that is the evidence of God's love maturing in me. And as that happens, then, what he's also said here in verses 17 and 18, it takes away any fear of divine judgment. I now have the Holy Spirit working in me, growing in me, increasing in me a desire to serve and love others, to be engaged in their lives, and to initiate love toward them in such a way that I'm able to go, that's not who I am by nature. That's not ordinarily the way that I'm wired. But by God working in me, he's now changing my desires. And that then is... Why, he says, then there is no fear in a, in a maturing, growing love. I'm, I'm not, I don't have to worry about divine judgment because I can already see God's doing something in me that, that must be God to accomplish that. Verse 12 had said, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Obviously, we've seen in Jesus Christ, John is the one who tells us in his gospel, he's revealing God to us, but he's talking here in particular about God the Father, and he's saying that his love growing in you is evidence of that which is unseen, the truth of God at work in you. Loving one another shows that, and that leads us to the last of the five points about God and his love, verse 20, 1 John 4, verse 20. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. God is love. God reveals love. God initiates love. God matures love. And the fifth one is God commands love. We've seen this already in 1 John. It it may seem obvious at this point, but this is scripture and God's word just making the point abundantly clear that all that we've just gleaned about the love of God is not merely for our delight and pleasure. It is now to be acted on. We are commanded now to love our brethren. And so they go hand in hand, God's love in us and our love for our brothers and sisters. You remember back in chapter three, what I, I said to you then was, I, I think John's sort of simple summary statement of all that he's saying in, in 1 John 3:23. this is his commandment. That we believe in the name of the Son, of his Son Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as He has commanded us. Our faith must be in the Savior, in His death for us, and in His resurrection. And the expression of that faith is our love for God and for others, for our, our brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's why, in particular, here in verse 20, he, he teaches this, says the command at the end of it, but he essentially teaches it through the converse. It says, if you're If you're not doing this, if you are pulling away from other believers in Jesus Christ, if your engagement with the community of believers is just happening to cross paths with them on Sunday morning, if you are not actively seeking to to serve your brothers and sisters in Christ, he says, then here's the warning. That's what verse 20 is challenging us on and saying, "You, you cannot continue this profession if you continue to live in this way, that denies who you are professing to be in Christ. Let me take this a little further. Chapter five, and just the first three verses of chapter five. says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. I would say to you, this passage adds to the explanation that I, I said to you right at the beginning from verse seven of why the unbelieving world does not truly love others. Because he says here, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever is born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God. That this, this is not a possibility for those who are not trusting in Jesus Christ. They, they do not know God, and they cannot have a genuine love. Verse two says, we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. Loving God must come first. There's a kind of primacy here that he's calling attention to. In the midst of talking about loving loving brother and sister, I should say, he emphasizes to us that first we learn what God has done and we respond to that by knowing and obeying God by obeying his commandments and loving God. So if we profess faith for other people, but separate that from a love for God... That is is desiring the creation over the creator. I'm not even going to say that's loving the creation over the creator because it's not actually love. It is desiring people or things more so than God. And that's why he says we must obey God and his commandments. We see that in the structure of the Ten Commandments. first 4, how we relate to God, how we obey and serve God. What flows out of that, the next six, are our relationship with people. So we love God. How do we know we love God? Just a couple of ways to think about this your worship corporately as we gather on, on Sunday mornings, but privately. Does, does your life reflect a desire to to hear from God, to, to be in His Word, and, and to take in what God says? Does your life reflect a, a, a prayerfulness? And I want to speak to God because I understand that God loves me and my love for God makes me want to speak to him as my heavenly father and tell him what's happening in my life and ask for his help. So is, is there private worship? The decisions that you make, the things that you prioritize, what you do with your time and treasure, all of that ultimately is a A measure, just as it is in in how we deal with other people and what we prioritize and decide, it is a measure of our love for God. Are we actually actively loving God? Are we serving and glorifying him? And and, and just to be clear, verse 3 says God's commands are not burdensome. He's not suggesting here that God's commands are just simple and easy that, that there's just nothing to them, because we know that's not the case in the sense that the New Testament tells us that w- we're in a battle here, that's spiritual warfare, and we're putting to death the deeds of the flesh, and, and discipline is required, and so we, we've seen all that. What he means by burdensome is really what Jesus referred to when Jesus was talking about the religious leaders of his day, the scribes and the Pharisees, and what they would do to the people that they were leading. In Matthew 23, verse 4, Jesus said, they tie up heavy burdens, there's the word again, hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. Rather than teaching people that there is a a just and loving God who is eager to to draw you to himself and and to empower you to obey him, life just becomes a a laundry list of activities. And, and, And at some point, just an exasperating list because I can't keep them all and I can't keep them all the time. And this just seems impossible. And yet the New Testament says, in Christ we have been set free from bondage to sin and because of the presence of the Spirit, we now are empowered to live patient and kind and loving and joyful. And and, and so when he's saying that they're not burdensome here, there's there's still discipline involved, we must still confront our hearts and, and our fleshly desires, but we can obey God's commands. A loving God has made the way that we now are able to follow after him so that when he says love your neighbor, love God, obey his commands, we can, we can actually do that by the work of his spirit in us. Let me recite again John, 1 John 4, 7, where we started, because I, I want to shift now to the believer's response to all of this. 1 John 4, 7 says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. So God commands love. Two, two responses on our part. First one is to remember your identity. If you have been saved by trusting in Jesus Christ, you are born of God. Your life has been made new. That's why it says we've been born again. You are now a Child of God. You have been redeemed and adopted into His family. This is reiterated. We read it already, but 1 John 5, 1 says everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. As a believer in Jesus Christ, you have been born again, and so you now belong to God as your Father. You bear that imprint, that name, that identity as belonging to God. And so just as you perhaps were raised to grow up reflecting the, 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 the family's honors and the, whatever the family's values were when they said you, you know, this is your name and you you bear this in, in the in the best way possible. We now are born of God and are to live out that identity as his children, as children of God. And in fact, he emphasizes there in 1 John 5, 1, therefore, we are loving whoever has been born of him. We're we're really making a point of seeing who our brothers and sisters in Christ are and serving them, sacrificing for them, caring for them. They are brothers and sisters. They, They genuinely are family. We shouldn't just throw that term around. That is meaningful substance that they are brethren to us. And to not love others, believers, is to deny that we belong to God. It is to deny that we belong to the family. We, we skipped a couple of verses, and I want to now come to the second thing in our response. First John four eleven, first John four eleven and twelve. I'll read, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and His love is perfected or matured in us. And then verses fifteen and sixteen again. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. Whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. We're to remember our identity, first, in response, and second, we are to remain or to live or dwell in love. John loves this term, abide. About two dozen times from chapter two through chapter four, verse 16, he's used abide, including that triple reference there at the end of verse 16. And the way he puts it there at the end of verse 16 is ultimately that your abiding in God relies on your abiding in love. You know that you are abiding in God if indeed you are living, dwelling, secure in loving him and and loving others. And you can only abide in love, take it back to the doctrinal test, if you know and believe the truth about who Jesus Christ is and what he's done. Knowing and believing the sacrifice of Christ means I know God's love. That knowledge should be growing in me and I should be at home loving my brethren. That should feel right because we are family and so I remain, I live in that love. Now, what does all this abiding accomplish? Last part and then we'll be done here. Chapter 5. Starting in verse 3, and we'll read down through verse 5. 1 John 5, 3 through 5. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Interestingly enough, he's back. This is John kind of come around in circles, back to the topic of overcoming, being victorious, particularly over the world. We saw that in chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. And here he brings it back again. By faith you are in Christ, you are born of him, therefore you are victorious in him because of what Christ has done. He seems again to be sort of ending this section on a note of doctrinal assurance. And yet and this is where commentaries are all over the place and where they start and end these various sections. We've got our headings in the ESV that tell us, well, it, it ends there at verse 5, but, but there's different ones who view these as being separate or together. I, I would say to you that his assurance, overcoming and victory, is tied right back to the love of God. That whole paragraph, chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, the, the sort of hinge in the middle is verse 3. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. That's the pivot between verses 1 and 2 and verses 4 and 5. And it's doing the same thing that we saw in chapter 4, where it's connecting the doctrinal and the experiential. As we know and believe the truth that God loved us and sent his son in verses 1 and 2, we respond with love for God and love for his children. And also he mentions in verse 3, obedience to his commands. But that love now is central to our obedience and faith. Because of this, we obey not out of fear. Our faith is not a response that's a fearful response. We obey out of the motivation of love. So when you get to the end of this, and he talks about overcoming, he's echoing back to Jesus. We're overcomers because Jesus is a conquering king. And the reality is we have put our trust in a conquering king for whom one day every knee will bow. It's a fearful picture on one level if you don't know him. Because even as Jesus described in that that day of judgment, the things that man believes he did in the dark will be brought out into the light and will be exposed. And Jesus will even say to some, he tells us in Matthew chapter 7, who were carrying out activities and doing religious sorts of things, depart from me, I never knew you. And that could be a, a fearful sort of thing to hear. But our victory... Our overcoming ultimately rests on knowing and believing the truth that God is love, that that love is manifest in Jesus Christ, and that God showed us his love. And so he is is light and holiness, and he is justice, and he is truth. But for we who are trusting in his Son for our salvation, he is love. He is our our redemption. He is our Savior who came in our place. And because of that love, there is mercy for you and I today. Because if you're like me, you know that the, the gospel truth that rescued you from your sinfulness is still the gospel truth that you're clinging to today because you're still struggling with temptation and sin. And that's why he's still bringing us back to saying overcomers. Why? Because God is love. Remember, he sent his son to die for you. Therein lies your hope. Don't forget who he is. Don't forget your identity. Know that he loves you. And because he loves you, He's not just like those religious leaders telling you, here's 10 things I want you to do today. He's saying, here are my commands, and now here is my empowerment for you to obey those commands. Here is how I'm helping you to obey those commands. Here's how I'm coming alongside you, and how I'm even continuing to forgive you as you struggle to obey those things. We are victorious, and we overcome the hostility of a world that has fixed its opposition on Christ because we fix our eyes on an eternal home in heaven, because our Father, in love, sent his Son, who, in love, gave himself for us. And therein lies our hope for ultimately overcoming. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, I, I pray first for anyone who is here this morning or watching online this morning who is not, this this just simply does not resonate, this sort of assurance and hope that this still seems like a difficult truth to fathom the understanding of God sending his son and our sin being the the issue that separates us from our creator. Father, I I pray that your word would have um, the effect We know that it's powerful and living and active, and so I pray that today your word would have that effect of changing hearts, of drawing to yourself people who need to know Jesus Christ as Savior, who need to be able to profess this very same truth. And so I pray that today you would open their eyes and lift them from darkness and cause them to see your remarkable, unfathomable love that you would sacrifice your beloved son, so that our sin might be met and satisfied in him. Lord, would you, would you save souls today by your Spirit's mighty work? And Lord, for we who profess faith in Christ, pray that your word has accomplished all that it set out to do, that there is conviction where we need conviction, but that there is encouragement and assurance, as John would want us to have, to know that our overcoming is rooted in the savior we believe in, who acted in love for his father and love for us. Thank you for the hope that we have in Christ. Thank you for the presence of your spirit to help us, to prod us to love others when we are tempted to do otherwise, to help us to love when we are being short in love, when we are being impatient or unwilling or not willing to overlook some offense. We're not willing to go and speak the truth to a brother or sister with whom we need to be reconciled. Lord, may you continue to mature in your people a growing love that strives to follow after you and love you and love our brothers and sisters in active and sacrificial ways. All these things we pray in the name of our great and loving Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.